0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Warrior Artist Podcast, a resource full of practical advice, tips, and inspiration to help you on your creative journey. My name is Aideen Glynn, and today I'm delighted to be joined by visual artist, curator, and arts facilitator Dermot Brown. Dermot Brown was born in Dublin and studied art in the Limerick School of Art and Design. Dermot is a painter who's particularly drawn to abstraction. He's also a curator and now an arts facilitator who at the time of recording has launched two spaces and is in the, is in the, in the process of completing the third of three new art spaces in the Cork area. As if this wasn't enough, Dermot is also a qualified life coach and a black belt in Aikido. I first met Dermot um, at the very first group exhibition I was in back in 2019, when he was working as a gallery assistant in the Lavitt Gallery. Now, it wasn't at the opening night, but it was during the run of the exhibition when one day I very shyly wandered in because I wanted to see my painting on the wall. And Dermot came over, he introduced himself and he offered to take my photograph of the painting. And we got to chatting and I suppose we struck up a friendship and have remained in touch over the years. So, Dermot, hello and welcome to the Warrior Artist podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Aideen.
0: Right, thanks for giving up your time to talk to us and share your story. So I suppose first I'd like to talk to you about your own art because you you do so many different things. Um and I think you don't talk that much about your own art practice. So firstly I wanted to say, did you always want to be an artist?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, from a very from a very young age, I was, you know, drawing and and messing with stuff. And I have a very early childhood memory of asking my mom for some paints that I would have seen on you know, these children's art programs, they teach you how to do this and that, you know? And I was like, can I have those, mom, you know? And so this is a very early memory for me. And to be honest, I, during school, later on in school, you know, there was careers guidance. There was all kinds of stuff going on. There were people nervous about the leaving cert, but they were nervous, I think, because they didn't know what they wanted to be yet. An awful lot of people, were. I never felt that. I never had that anxiety, but I had a strange feeling of like, how can you not know what you want to do, do you know? So this was a, an unusual uh, thing that I noticed from an early point. So
0: it was always art. So it was your favourite subject in school. And then you went to art oh, yeah. college.
1: Yeah, yeah um, I, I did, really badly, like I did really, really
0: badly
1: in the Leaving Cert. I did really badly in the Leaving Cert because I just poured all my time into into art. And, and you know, I didn't realise you had to do all these other, pay, spread your attention across different subjects, you know?
0: Oh, I think that's great. I mean, I think everyone should do that. You knew what you wanted, and you had this single, single mind to focus on it. And you, you've said that you are a painter who's interested in everything as expressed through painting, especially abstraction. And we've talked about that we both love abstraction. But what? How would you say what is it about abstraction that you love or that really connects to you?
1: Um, you know, I could do the whole podcast on that, Aideen, because it's. <laughs> because sometimes abstraction is about nothing, it's also about everything. And, you know, it's it's partly it's partly just a tool to play with color uh, freely, whereas if you're tied to, let's say, a more figurative language, you might be more specific with your color. So I, I really enjoy playing with color and form. And, you know, sometimes like we're coming out into the spring now, but sometimes in the depths of winter, when I go into the studio, I go, oh, yes, that's that's why I do this thing is because, you know, the the winters are hard in Ireland and dark and grey. And then it gives you an opportunity to go somewhere that's, you know, potentially full of life and colour. But there was a friend of mine recently asked me almost the same question. Um, he's a theatre director, owner Hanrahan. He said, like, what is it? What's your painting about? Something to that effect. And I it's a difficult question because the answer is different nearly every time. But I said to him, I'm I'm involved in manipulating empty space. In, in and that's what I consider that I'm doing. I'm not turning the empty space into uh, uh, something else. I'm trying to discuss how empty space works. You know, so it, it crosses over with a lot of my other interests in meditation and martial arts, so you're trying to deal with emptiness and form through a, through a, a fixed language, you know. So was it always
0: paint? Because when you say empty space, that could be sculpture, was it always paint that you were drawn to in that tactile nature me, of yeah,
1: colour? It, it was always anything 2D, painting, drawing, printing, collage, I love collage work, and you know, I consider that I am working, I mean, I'm I'm going to contradict myself now, I said I'm working with empty space, but it's about empty space, really. You know, so sometimes in the paintings I make, you'll see shapes and boxes and forms, almost, you know, sculptural forms built up on top of each other. So I do consider that I'm working with three dimensions as well, you know, and then there's the added element of putting in the collage, a flat piece of collage on top of something. So you're playing with that figurative language. You're telling people it's abstract, but look, it's not abstract, you know. So hopefully, it's hopefully it's provoking an awareness in the observer, you know. So painting, should, I, for me, painting has to be in love with the observer.
0: That's a really lovely way of putting it. It's not just about yourself. It's about the relationship with the person who will be looking at this mm. one day when it's hanging up and what, what it is. But I'm so struck by what you're saying as well about the long winters in Ireland and that when you paint, it gives you that colour, like kind of it gives you that instant summer or spring or new life. So it definitely is. And could you? You've moved. So when I met you first, you were living in Cork City, and then you moved pre-pandemic out to Rathcormac a village in North County Cork, where you have a larger space. Uh, you before we start recording, you should be around a little bit there. It looks amazing. And did that make having that extra space pretty? I imagine during lockdown, that must have made a big difference to your work having a,
1: a bigger studio huge difference and the the idea that that i can now go from the kitchen to the studio in five seconds and start painting is just fantastic you know and i have to i have to try and balance my life because if i got locked into the studio with a pot of coffee i'll never come out again it's just where i want to be you know so it's been a challenge for me over the years to try and organize other things and and train in other areas and be active because it's it can become an obsessive thing you know and you know, that can be good. That has, that's a double-edged sword, you know. It can be good to be very focused on something, but uh I, I'm a little bit against the the kind of myth of the obsessive artist, you know, the kind of uh, uh headlong into the studio and I'm, this year I'm obsessed with this colour or this year I'm obsessed with this idea. And, you know, uh it's very romantic and I get it, but I, I don't buy into it anymore at all. I think we have to really... You know, use our time wisely when we're in the studio. Uh, but it's also important, Adi, to just be in the studio. You know, just uh, when I studied life coaching, there was we had to do like peer coaching. So your your fellow students were coaching you, and there was one uh, girl who's very, very very good. I had a problem at the time, and I couldn't go into the studio, and I was you know things weren't working, and she said to me, uh, just go into the studio and touch the things. You know, just be in there and touch the paint the tubes and touch the canvases and be there and she, she's not an artist but this was a very good suggestion you know to sort of oh uh, yeah for creative block
0: because once you yeah. once you go in there then you will start oh i wonder if i squeeze that out or I, yeah just, just describe your studio so you before this was your studio not in your home when you lived in cork
1: city was it a... it wasn't it was, in, it was in different places i had a studio in the sculpture okay. factory before moving out so that was quite well, cheeky right. and you know anyone from the sculpture factory my apologies and um, i pretended i pretended i was doing a 3d project no i, I was making some uh, i was making some structures to to store paintings in but i really used it like a painting studio and they were teasing me about that you know in the sculpture factory the painter but uh, to be honest i felt very at home because a lot of the in the sculpture factory is such a making space it's such a physical reality and when i look at my own paintings uh, you know, sometimes you'd want to make paintings and you want them to end up in a particular way and they're coming out another way altogether. And you have to accept that. And, uh, you know, I don't want to let myself off the hook either. But you have to look at the paintings and the results. And for me, my paintings are very rough. Sometimes they're very rugged and rough and, and, and almost unfinished looking. Uh, but I love that uh, the Japanese might the call it, quality? you know raw raw, wabby, sabi kind of you know roughness to them and uh, that fitted into the sculpture factory for sure that was really kind of like it worked but yeah it's so it's tough you know if you're, if, if you're renting a studio and you're watching the clock tick on a rented studio it's tough it puts you under pressure so to be able to be out here in, in the countryside and there's huge windows here in the studio and you know there's light coming in and I I constantly need to tidy it because I have too many things and I keep stuff, I keep cardboard from wrappings and stuff like that. So I constantly have to tidy it. So, But tidying for me is not, you know, sort of a chore. Tidying gives you an insight into the studio because you'd be tidying or arranging or saying, let's put those works away. And what you're doing is your eye is watching other works in the studio that you were afraid to go at. So this is something I would typically... it's it's, if there's any rule in the studio is don't go at the painting that you'd really love to get right do something else in the meantime start stretching another canvas or start preparing other wood uh or tidy the studio and then your eye is always looking at that piece and then all of a sudden it's done and you haven't you know put yourself under the pressure of getting it right you know
0: that's interesting so when you're working on something i haven't heard that before and it's the painting you're working on or you want to complete you you resist going out totally. at first to do other things and you just work it out
1: your head. I'll do anything other than do that painting because typically for me there's there's a, a color that I'm looking. It's always about color. and if I'm not in the studio for a few hours or a few days, my ability to mix the color has gone downhill. So if I go back in and I've spent a few days and I'm mixing and I'm just throwing paint onto a bit of collage that I was doing you're starting to get the juices going again and then you can have a color in front of you. And then you look over and you go, that's the color for that painting. So it comes out very organically, you know? So uh, that's, that's something that's second nature to me now at this point in time is, you know, an example again would be, let's say, I'm trying to finish a painting for something like the RHA annual exhibition. I don't know how many paintings I've messed up completely because I was trying to finish them and get them right. And, you know, it just takes the joy out of it.
0: Okay, the kind of that pressure, that deadline. Uh, particularly mm. if you're trying to have this sort of rough, unfinished work. I mean, the you must really have to resist the temptation to overwork because it's so easy to go so far and then suddenly you've lost it, and it's very hard to get mm. that back. But can mm. you describe your studio first? So, is it a bedroom or like is it a space in a space? Where, where is it? It a, was
1: a bedroom. It was an extra bedroom in this house, but it has two full uh, walls of windows. The the, the house here is designed, you know, almost top to bottom glass walls. So, you know, if I asked someone to design a studio for me, it couldn't be better. And um, there was a few tables that weren't being used. So I set a table up in the middle and I'll have my painting equipment on that. And I have a table then with the paints and I have a small easel that I set pieces up on. Um but then I will often work on the floor as well because you the bigger paintings there's a couple here behind me you try and work in the round and you try and work and, and move around them physically so then it becomes more of a more of a physical endeavor you know so how can i describe the studio you know i'm getting better there's all sections organized with here's all my collage stuff here's there's a section where i throw stuff so there's lots of things like nails that were rusted and bags that were made of hessian that I just can't sew out and I you know in my head I'm always going to turn into some kind of a found object mixed with painting and it still hasn't happened but I collect these bits and pieces of rough dirty things but they're they're kind of they're great objects to have in the studio you know just to in, inform the texture. Oh, that sounds
0: inspiring that sounds amazing I've seen it on Instagram but I'm just wondering like how big it is. And so you talk about, you could. it's so easy now for you to go to the studio because it's like in your home, you can just wander in there. What is your studio practice? Like, do you paint every day or several times a week? Recently, or how do you
1: manage recently, all that time? No. I'd say, uh, 18, uh, you know, I'm talking about my studio, my studio, how easy it is to go to. I haven't been in the studio for a month, I'd say now. And that's just a particular moment in time. It's after Christmas, There's been exhibitions on, there's been other projects that I've been pursuing. Because for me, you know, uh, in my hard won wisdom, it's about a balance of things, you know, so I have, it's very easy for me to go into the studio and make 15 new paintings, but I don't have anywhere uh, necessarily to show them. I don't have the platform set up to sell them. I don't have the audience ready. So I'm trying always to build those things in parallel with the studio, you know, I see an awful lot of artists frustrated that they've done this great work or they've done work that they're proud of. And then they don't have an outlet for it, you know? So this is part of my work that I do on, in parallel with the, my own studio practice. But, um, no, when I'm in the studio, when, th- when things are going well in the studio, I'll be like, you know, breakfast into me downstairs. I, I, I won't start with important stuff straight away. I might tidy or, or cut wood or, or, you know, do a small bit of collage work or something physical that you can just use your hands. And then I go and have another second coffee and then I will go back down and then you're ready to go. You know, so you might have a late lunch that day and you just go at it. And that might go on for a week or two. But, you know, I mean, more than that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an issue for me that I will let go of my other responsibilities if I just let myself stay in the studio. I will, you know. Uh, That's
0: great, though. So. It is that balance of time, though, managing, and all the jobs we have to do as an artist. And when you're in the studio, do you have music on or is it quiet?
1: I have music on all day. This is a difficult thing to be on this podcast now and not be listening to music at the same time. Yeah. I have music on all day, Aideen, and uh, especially in the studio, and that varies depending on what kind of work I'm doing. There's a huge range of music that I would listen to, but it's really, I'm into indie music. I'm in 90s. I came of age in the nineties and a lot of great cool bands. Then we were, we were spoiled, you know, but in our, in our college in Dublin, in I was there for a year. I had some great friends there and we used to joke, like if the professors asked us, so who are you influenced by? We'd say, well, the Jesus and Mary chain and, uh, uh, you know, Sonic Youth and my bloody Valentine. And, you know, it's very true to say that I think I would be more influenced by music than other art. Obviously, I have a great interest in visual art, but it's the music that's informing. It's this kind of the kind of music, like like a great Irish band, like My Bloody Valentine. Right? There's albums by them that just don't get old, and they they make work in a way that feels like they're building the work up and they're tearing the work down at the same time. They're kind of uh, they're 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 prepared to go to the edge where it's nearly broken. The whole thing, you know. So that's
0: and that's sort of like how you're describing your work actually all those layers yeah. and like when i look at your work is um you're very beautiful palette very muted palette and i you sort of use similar colors there's there's a mutedness like i can see it's coming from nature and then there's all these repeated elements these like which could be like music where you build up layers and then there's all this this rawness there's kind of drips and there's a looseness i think certainly in the last few years it's gotten looser and it's like a real balance between that it used to be more structured and there's still these structural repeat, repeated patterns but then there's this loose elements as well and all these really really beautiful colors so i can see how like music would feed that and uh for me yeah definitely music as well also it, it helps me paint because i suppose Did you're, you're you know i video? Oh, I have to. Yeah, I have to. I have to listen to music and I couldn't listen to, I couldn't listen to a podcast. I couldn't listen to words. It has to no. music. And I find it's a shortcut in. I suppose it's, there's a connection between it. like, I think music, painting and poetry are all connected. Mm. They're all sort of similar ways of expression. And I it's probably bypassing some part of you that helps you become creative. And so you talked about, so you're a, you're a studio and do you have any favourite tools or paints?
1: What do you like to work mm. with? I mean, I, I, what I do is, I, as I'm building up the layers of the painting, I mean, it's, it's this, it's this idea that you could go. There's a lot of artists spend an awful lot of money on their materials, and I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, you need to do what you've got to do, but, um, I treat myself to old Holland paints, and, um, I use them as a, as the process is going. Oil You're paints, using oil, oil, oil paint. Yeah. Oil
0: paints.
1: Or old Holland, you know, beautiful, I, beautiful. Yeah. But I'll mix them in with other paints, you know, so I'm not a purist like that. I'll mix them in with um I think there's a Georgian is it to make? Um I can't remember, but you know, I I, I love mixing colours, I love getting them right, and I love I'll typically have two jars, you know, of the of the white spirits or the turpentine, and I have two there, one to clean the brush and one like when the when that jar gets too dirty, I'll pour all of that in there. But then I'm using the gunk at the bottom of that jar is essentially the accumulated color that's fallen to the bottom. So it's gray. So anytime I've got a color that's just too happy and too punchy, uh, I'll mix in a little bit of that and it just tones it down. So it's a very particular personal (laughs) process for your, you know, it's almost alchemical where you're using what's there to create something that, um, uh, looks aged or it looks lived in you know it's like a good pair of shoes that you had that you love them i want the paintings to look like that at the end
0: that's a great idea and it's a great way of unifying all your colors because if all your colors have a tiny bit of this muddiness it gives you that very because you do have a very specific palette so i can see how that would help with that and it's muted like you don't have any you can see that they're not straight from the tube they're all mixed a little bit and they have that beautiful
1: well, this is what They're my wonderful art teacher, I had an art teacher in school, Aide Dean, uh, Donald Higgins. And, uh, you know, this this is a kind of, I've had a number of teachers along the road who just couldn't, they were put there on purpose. It's just like a, a synchronicity going on It's someone who sort of saved your life at a particular moment in time. And Donald was, was the first one and the best one. And what, you know, he condensed for our Leaving Cert, three volumes of Renaissance art history and wrote out his own notes. And, you know, he showed us how to mix color. He, in one or two years, there were really? three or four artists came out of his class that are still practicing today. You know, so it's, it was an incredible experience, but sorry, what were you asking me before that? Why I can't I don't remember, what school
0: was this in actually? Was this Malahide you're from, is it?
1: it or? Port Marnock, Port Marnock Community School. Port Marnock, uh, wow. Donald has retired. Donald retired now, I'd say two, two years ago, but, um, like let's say we were 16 and he brought into the school an exhibition of Chris Darr's artwork. So Chris is a Mayo Dublin artist who, um, you know, we, we were bowled over by this as 16, 17 year olds. There were canvases ripped and torn and there were crucifixes and there were color and there was a whales. I remember a print, Chris did a lot of monoprints. So like I got back in contact with Chris years later and I, you know, I, I curate his work now and I, and you know, contact with him regularly, and uh, it was all because of Donald. I actually wrote my leaving cert essay on Chris Dorris. I'd say I'm the only person to ever have done that.
0: That's amazing. So you you came across him as a student in like second level, oh. and you've got yeah. since gone on connected and curated his work. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And when. Um, he sounds like an amazing teacher. Did he teach you how to work with oil paint or the
1: acrylics? Uh, everything, everything. Oil paints seemed too exotic to us because they were just messy and there was, you know, toxic materials and whatnot. So, yeah, I do remember, you know, he did poster design with us. He, we had letter set. I don't know if you know what they are, Aideen, letter set books. So typography books.
0: Letters. Yeah. With every
1: single, every single type of typographical font was in these books and there were stacks of them over in the corner. And I just was pouring through these things and trying to draw the, you know, so I was quite good at graphics and, dry, and design kind of things. And that's, it's kind of coming back now a little bit in in, in other ways, but Donald taught us a bit of everything. Monoprinting, you know, he, he, he got us to do monoprinting probably when Chris was there in the college, in the, in the school, Chris was into this monoprinting, but a very simple form of monoprinting where you would use kind of newsprint and just draw onto a plate and then, you know, roll over that. And you get a very simple kind of monochromatic drawing. But uh, I did a drawing, like if I show you now, if I go halfway across here and my head is kind of halfway in the screen. So I did this monoprint and uh, Donald said to me, it's very Freudian dermis, you know, just split, <laughs> you know, and I, and I went, yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea who so Freud cool. was, you know what I mean? He's like it's very Freudian of you, Dammit, you know. And he's that kind of person who is lifting you up all the time, you know. And I remember at one point in time he was arguing with me about something after class, and I was like, "But you last week you agreed with this, and now you're arguing with me about this." And he said, "Yeah, I'm trying to make you opinionated. I'm trying to get oh, you to hang to on to your you. opinion. He's trying to get me to develop my opinion about something." And I was, I had this moment then of going, "Oh my God." Do you know what I mean? This, this is an education that you couldn't get in the rest of the school. Absolutely. You know? That's incredible.
0: And when you're working on your paintings, I'm curious to know, do you work on multiple pieces? You talked about your process on tables and floors or is it one at a time?
1: Too much, Aideen, too much. And it's it, there's, a parallel, there's a parallel there with my projects and my curatorial stuff and my entrepreneurial stuff. I'm working on too many things at the same time outside the studio. And I'm working on too many things at the same time in the studio and I've accepted that at this point in time, I've accepted it's a way of working but um, we do need to kind of uh, dovetail out and sort of you know finish things or or let things be finished and you know that's partly why it's it's important to have solo exhibitions, I have a solo coming up ne- next month so that gives you an opportunity to sort of focus down and say look co- let's call all these finished and see what they're like on the wall and you know, it's it's a great moment to and do that. Gives you a
0: deadline as well, like you know, mm-hmm. otherwise you can just keep creating. So
1: exactly that brings us
0: onto your curating role, Dermot. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you've curated like even back from approaching somebody who you met as a student, connecting with somebody, and you call yourself a curator with a small C. But what really strikes me is, I think you are an amazing connector of people, and it's possibly a skill you're not even aware that you have. And like you told me before we started speaking, that you're shy, which I totally would not have uh, imagined at all, because I don't know. I think you're very good with people and you're very empathetic and you are also very generous at talking to people and very good at supporting new artists and emerging artists and introducing artists to each other, which I think is a, a great skill. You just don't focus on, you know, yourself or your own thing. You're very good at mindful of other people there even down to that time when you spoke to me when I was, you know, hadn't a clue. And I remember then I had a small uh, exhibition in a community space and you brought other artists to meet me and you were always connecting and introducing people. And it's just a great skill you have. And I can see how that would really help you as a curator in all that bringing work together. And what is, like, what what do you, what what do you like about being a curator and what you don't you like about it? And...
1: Can I go back for one second to the school and I'll get to that hopefully tangentially. Sure. Um, there was a there was a not every school had a guidance counselor, you know, and we had a guidance counselor, Mr. Taff, and he was a very interesting character and he had his own little room, which looking back on it was probably the size of a, a broom closet, you know. and um you went in there and there were stacks of books of careers and books and whatnot. And uh, I was fascinated by that space and by people's, by people and their, why their choices, you know, why are they making these choices? What Who wants to go and be a nurse and who wants to be an engineer? And, and I, on the surface of it, I was, should have been in there looking at my own career, but there was a fascination with all these possibilities, you know? So for me, it is about people and the choices people make. And I do love meeting new people um, um, I think we have to know what some of our skills are, even if it if it's difficult to be so personal and, and aware of ourselves. Like I did it during the lockdown. I did a couple of very interesting courses. One of them was through the States was, and trust the Americans to call it something like the inner MBA. So it was about inner practices and mindfulness and conscious leadership. But on one particular form that they asked you to fill up, they they said, again, a very American way of putting it. What's your superpower? You know? So they said, what's your superpower? And what was and I was yours? cursing. I was here at home cursing, <laughs> going, fuck, fuck you, superpower. What are you talking about? I hate you, you know? And then I thought about it for a minute and I said, no, something. there is something that comes very easy to me, and that's connecting people. You know, I, I'm, I love connecting people and I love doing that. And I have, like, a friend of mine joined LinkedIn recently, and he said, damn it, what, how can you have 1,500 people on LinkedIn and I and I said, well, I just do, you know. And they're from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of industries. And you you might connect with somebody, and then two years later, you might go, oh, that person doesn't know that person. And it's not like I'm trying to leverage my own situation. It's just really enjoyable to get people to meet each other, you know. So it's doubly you're interesting. In people. Yeah, yeah, you're very interested. Yeah. I
0: remember you the opening of the exhibition. Uh, so Dermot curated um, a group show that I was delighted to be in new Ian art in the crane visual and I remember we, I talked to you afterwards and you said that you were very mindful the whole time of who's there and introduce people to like as if it was a like a dinner party almost mm. and I think that's unusual skill and I think very few people have that ability to kind of be watching the room and sort of saying oh that person should talk to that person do they know each other and it's a it's a real skill actually I think and it's certainly you definitely have it so and I remember something else that struck me is. Over we've met a few times in person or maybe by text. And anytime I mentioned anybody, you knew them. You were like, Oh, yeah, I knew him. I met him 10 years ago. Or every single person I came across in the art world, you already knew them well, and had a relationship with them, which I think is really unusual. Well,
1: it's a strange sensation from the inside out, Aideen, because it's not a big deal in one sense. Because, like, if you're in the art world long enough, any world long enough, you end up knowing people through one role or another role. And, you know, Cork is not that big a place, but, you know, I, I look at other people who are in the art world and I go, oh, my God, I couldn't do what they're doing. I couldn't do this all all week long. Um, and I, this sounds negative, like I, but I couldn't deal with artists all week long because artists <laughs> require attention. And I'm one yeah. of them. You know what I mean? Artists require love and attention. And I love meeting people from a variety of interests and backgrounds, you know, but I see some people who are plugged in. To the art scene and I think that there's something you know wrong with that because if you've nothing else f- that flows into your space from the outside from other areas other businesses other you know life paths you know then you're just you're just a networking monster then at that point in time you know well you're interested in people
0: I can see that even from your early years and with the career in that career office you like people and how they work and I can imagine that must be an amazing skill as a curator. When you're thinking of an exhibition, you're like, oh, you know, you're thinking about their art, but probably also as a people in terms of well, how you strange. put an exhibition
1: together. It's strange. Like the, the new year art exhibition, I'm so happy with how that's, uh, st- you know, it's at, the, at the moment it's still on the wall. I'm very happy with the reaction to that. I'm happy with the way it worked. But like you mentioned Aikido earlier on, like there's a, there's a feeling in the martial art Aikido that, I didn't do it, it just happened, you know? So you're not trying to throw somebody over, they fell over and you were just happened to be there, you know? So, so like that's... Like an
0: effortlessness. Effortlessness. Like just, or facilitating it, yeah. It's like a grace. Mm.
1: And that, there's a grace to it. And that's how that exhibition felt to me was, you know, you're listening to the moment that's in front of you, which is the same as painting a picture. You're trying to pay attention to what's happening in front of you. And when I was up in Dublin for that curating event, the speed curating with the VAI, It's just one lady after another with, you know, interesting paintings, funny paintings. Uh, But like there was only one or two guys, not that they weren't interesting, they were. But I said, look, listen to what's happening in front of you. And there was loads of other female painters in Cork and abroad and artists in general. I said, just do this, see what happens. So, you know, it's an opportunity to have you in the exhibition, which I had never done properly, let's say, before um an opportunity to bring in an artist from barcelona so it is a question of leave it's like the contacts just leaving them there for a lot as long as you can and then at one moment in time oh bring it all together you know so it's scary because you don't know and that's partly what i'm trying to do with the crane visual space is not plan it, plan one year two years three years in advance trying to leave it a little bit more open to see what how it can react to the events that are happening around it you know it's it's part of a practical reality that other museums and galleries plan far ahead. But for me, it's not. It's the death of creativity to plan three years in advance.
0: Well, maybe because it's a small space, as so that leads it into, there's three spaces that Dermot's in the middle of like developing or having developed. One is Crane Visual, which is in Firkin Crane in Cork City. And there's the Richmond Revival in Fermoy, And then there's the one space in Rathkorak, which I think you're working on now. So I think Mm. that's amazing. Like you talk about all this energy and all these, that you're doing too many things, but there's something very, it seems like there's something happening now that you're, you're seeing this need to create the space. And you talked about that you went to, as a curator, to the speed curating event in Visual Artist Ireland in Dublin, and you met all these women artists who were working in abstraction and that gave you the idea. And then you had the opportunity. So tell us about Crane Visual, that you say you have this, let's talk about that one first, that you have this idea about not being a typical gallery where you're planning years in advance, that you want to be smaller, more nimble and respond to things and be more creative in your programming?
1: Well, each of the, those three spaces that, you know, I, just thinking about this in the moment, like they each of those three spaces represent a relationship, you know, and that seems like an obvious thing to say, but, you know, it's, it's, with the the dance cork Frick and Crane, the, it's a dance space. And, you know, for me, that seemed like an interesting thing to sort of suggest to them is how could dance and art uh, cross-pollinate and work together in one space and they're they're two different communities, but there'd be similar interests. So, you know, that was a, a conversation that started during lockdown. And, you know, probably there was two years of a conversation behind that. And it's worth having the conversation, even if it takes that long, so that something might come out of it. And, you know, it was exciting to think of a round space. So it's a round room. It was exciting to think. And your first reaction is like, don't, for God's sake, don't do that. You know, it's a nightmare, a round space for paintings and and art. But, you know, then you think, no, it's something different. Let's try it. Let's try it. And I was never intending to open other spaces at the same time. But other things came up, like those friends of ours or friends of friends uh, bought this huge house in Formoy. So it's it's the Richmond. It's called Richmond. I think it was uh, owned by the Walker family. Then it was run by a, an order of nuns. And they they bought that house and moved their family into it. it. has large grounds around it. So it's, I think, an Edwardian period house and there's huge front rooms, you know, and uh ceilings. So I took over one of the rooms downstairs and I painted it and I put on a solo exhibition. And,
0: and just that's a work environment. Did, did you just say, oh, look, you've got this empty space. Can I use it as an exhibit exhibiting space? Is that how that
1: came about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But like, you know, I was I was chancing my arm in one sense, but they knew that they they wanted in the future, um, you know, develop that space and potentially have weddings on, have uh, functions on there. So I was it was an easy enough thing to suggest, look, if you start having art exhibitions on there now, people will get used to the idea that there's that there's um, things there's different things happening in that space. You know, so it's 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 a compromise and we're still they're not they're not an art gallery and it's not a it's not open all day to the public. It's by appointment only. So it's a very developing kind of relationship. But then the third space is beside the house over here, and it's a huge structure. Uh, again, it's a kind of a, a, a Dutch, as they call it, the Dutch building uh, in the American sense, but it's not Dutch, it's Deutsch. It's the German style of building and a big A-frame structure that uh, our landlord had developed but hadn't made it into a house. And he's an artist as well. Lionel Powell is an artist, a sculptor. Lionel would have put the sculptures back on top of the courthouse, uh back 25 years ago so repaired them and put them back and he restored all of the the of casts inside in the Crawford art gallery so you know mm-hmm. he's very mm-hmm, he's very sympathetic to the the arts and he's a builder as well so we just looked at that space and said there's lots of examples of successful uh rural kind of uh community cultural spaces and why don't we crack on and, and develop that space but it's, I studied sustainability during the lockdown, so it's an exercise, again, in sustainability. There's reclaimed windows. We put in a sprung floor so that we can use it as a dance studio or a yoga studio as well. So there's tires, old tires are there, so it gives a little bit of spring to it. And, you know, I don't think it would work necessarily just as an art gallery. So we're developing it into an art and wellness space. So let's see what happens, you know, but all of a sudden I have three spaces, you know, and and honestly I'm looking at two others. So it could be five within, by this time next year. So. That's
0: um, amazing. So you're seeing all these opportunities that are out there.
1: Sure. Uh, maybe because huge. you I saw mean,
0: one, then you could see these other ones and you're just asking people basically. So, yeah. I mean, that's very brave Dermot. That's very, and also again, it's all your connections that you know, all these people. Mm. And, um, and they obviously like you and they're saying yes. And the, the bills beside you, all right, so is Lionel? Your, is he building it himself, or are you having people in to help? We're building it or together. Putting like our
1: time and time and effort and money and love into this project, and you know, wow. it's it's a huge space. You know, so it's probably thirty by thirty feet with high vaulted ceilings and sprung floor, and you could hold a banquet there. You could hold a wedding there. It's it's huge, but it's here, and it's it has to. You know, part of my philosophy or interest is in design thinking. So it's a new fashionable area of, of kind of planning. And um, you're trying to plan things that fit a particular space. Do you know what I mean? So I might be able to put on some uh, of my selfish, high-end, abstract painting shows, but I'm not sure in rural North Cork that there's an audience for that, you know? But at the same time, there are galleries in Dublin who which exist only to photograph art. You know, so there's some galleries that exist and their purpose is to photograph well art to send to international exhibitions then. So there's lots of reasons for having it. You know, there's a strange relationship there as far as I can see, Aideen, And you you'd be able to speak about this uh, in terms of the the parallel existence of the real spaces and the online spaces, you know? So
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you need both you know, you know there's nothing like seeing work on a wall. I think it is the best thing. I think and seeing your work hanging with other artists, like it is such a great feeling. I think nothing beats that experience. Also, if, you know, if you're an art, artist, you love to go and seeing their work in person, it is better than seeing it on a book or on a screen by far. But when people can't get to things, you know, or they can't, you know, they can't get out to see things or even within like living in Cork and getting to something, something I don't, I miss things that are all in Cork because of life. So if there is a record, another record, it just gives people an opportunity to see sure. things. And I know we made the point of, um, doing a quick live on Instagram, because that meant then there was something recorded we could share of the exhibition in Crane Visual. And and I wanted to show the outside because the building is so unique and so interesting and always mindful that not everybody looking at this is from Corks, they don't know what it looks like. and I think that was, um, was clever with Crane Visual as well as because the big pain about these spaces and these exhibitions is having to invigilate so invigilate is when you've got a somebody's got to sit there all day mm. and be in that space so nobody robs the paintings and that was so clever when you approached the dance company because there is a receptionist there so it's mm. basically open to the public you can wander in but you didn't have to provide invigilation I know for mm. myself sometimes I don't go for things because part of it will be you have to invigilate and I just can't give that time yeah and yeah, so in the space in the Richmond Revival, it's open on appointment. So is it when the family or something the family can kind of bring yeah. people in? Yeah. So I you
1: need don't to, have to, to Well, ever. look, I'm, I don't want I don't want to present an idea that it's all organized. The, the the Richmond Revival is a fun and funky space where they've had on like they had on a great, a really top quality uh trad uh, weekend of music. And so the same room that my art was in, there was this a full crowd of people. And so I knew that there's going to be moments where people see the work when it, when there's a function on there. And there's been other meetups there. So, you know, it's time that we mixed up the reasons why people see art, you know. And obviously, the and Crane is a great example of that because there's people in there dropping their kids in to see um. To, to go to do their dance classes, or they're hanging around the class isn't finished yet, and now they have a space to go into. You know, uh, at least during the summertime, we'll see how it works now this summer. But during the summertime, there's busloads of people coming up there, and uh, absolutely,
0: it's a, a tourist they, area of Cork City. This beside like Shandon Bells for anyone who doesn't know where it is. So it's very famous, beautiful, preserved part of Cork within walking distance <laughs> of the city, and the Ferkin Crane was the old. Butter market, is it? Or
1: the it was the butter market and the building. butter exchange. Hmm. The circular, as far as I know, the and Crane was the butter market where you bought and sold, but where you quantified the value of your butter was the exchange, which is across the way, which yes. is now being redeveloped, which is another story altogether. Yeah. But um, my
0: grandmother actually used to make butter with her family, and they used to get the the donkey and cart from north cork cork down to it and i think they they were her mother was always um very proud that they got one of the highest prices oh for the butter that it was it's
1: i mean she just talked amazing. about the
0: donkey making the butter and it, it is a very old part of corks history that kind of butter making yeah,
1: but, and but since i've been there uh, at least involved with the gallery the amount of people who told me anecdotes about their involvement with the and crane like barbara Keneally, who's in the show her grandparents, I think, was it her parents or grandparents? Must be her grandparents. Would bring in. I uh, was. I think her grandfather had a shop on Washington Street, which was a farrier's. So the people were bringing their their horses up with the the butter for the butter market. They'd leave the horses there. He'd reshoe them while they were up in the market, and bring them back down. And you hear these stories, and the city comes alive again. You know. And
0: um, it's only a few generations
1: ago. I can just Oh yeah. So farrier is somebody who does mean? the horseshoes. Is that it? Yeah, the horseshoes. You know, so my began, ignorance. Uh, well, that's what they did, and I think that you know they they they'd stabled the horses for the day as well. You know, so they'd leave them down there and they bring the butter up, but, uh, something like that. I'm probably telling the story wrong, and Barbara can tell you better. But uh, there was other anecdotes then from other artists that I met that had family who brought butter up to the Firkin Crane. Do you know? And yeah. and I remember is...
0: my my both my daughters did ballet and I remember going and uh, mm. having many times dropping and collecting ballet classes and going to, there's a space above it, which is a bigger auditorium, going to watch shows there. I had never been into the Musgrave Theatre. It's, it's the space on the mm. ground floor that you're using. I think it's. So clever the way you're using the spaces in the round, which is very theatrical. And um, for anyone who's interested, we've actually put a video, and I've linked it up on Instagram, where you can actually see see the space that you've created. These uh, straight walls so that you can hang hang paintings on them, because I suppose most of the work is is two D, so you're trying to hang it on the wall. And but it could lend itself to performance art or sculptural work because it's such an interesting mm-hmm. space. And the So, and you've got an exhibition coming up, can you tell us, So, at the time of recording it, it's not yet, um, but I think by the time this is published, it may actually be open or about to open. Can you tell us a little bit about your exhibition? Mm -hmm. Your own
1: exhibition. It's it's coming up in the Crane Visual Space from the second, that's the Thursday, I think, the 2nd of uh, March until, uh, I think it's six weeks long altogether. And it brings together some new work and some work that might've existed in the last couple of years it's all relatively new. Like it's, for me, it's hard to define what's new because I tinker away with paintings and, you know, um it's frustrating. A solo show is frustrating because you always think, oh, I do this new thing that I've been waiting to do. I'll, I'll do that for the show, but it's always a mistake to try and push in new, new work. Whereas there's this work that might be six months old or a year old, Where it's old to you, but it's not old to the public at all or to the audience, you know? So I bring it together. Some works that are already in for moi, some works that are in the studio and some newer works that haven't been shown at all. And, um, you know, it's it's an excuse for me to see the work together in one place and um, a lot of abstract work. There's some collage work. Um, it's going to be called The Beauty of Everyday Things. And uh, it's a great it's title. Na- it's the name of a Love book it. by uh, a Japanese author, uh, Suetsu Yanagi. And he... Um, he was a, a historian of crafts in japan and uh it's a beautiful book which just so the way he speaks about the craft you could easily be speaking about painting in that in those terms you know so and again it's a sort of a pun on my own thoughts about painting because everyday things like for artists the paintings are everyday things you know i mean obviously sometimes i have moments where i go i love that painting i can't believe i made that painting but Mostly, they're just everyday things, like cups and plates and spoons and chairs. And when they go the, back in... The nails in, someone... and
0: the bits of cardboard and all these things yeah. you're seeing that are feeding into your work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if someone buys it, then I'm, I'm fascinated by the way people buy art and hang art in their own homes. So if you go into someone's home, they might have an a. Dean Glynn painting, but they might have their own family photos next to it. They might have something on the fridge. They might have a thing that they bought on holidays. And the way people collect and arrange things at home uh, is specific to them. And it's a form of curation, even if they don't know what a curation means. But it, they become everyday things, is my point. They become uh, domestic items. you know. So they go from my domestic items to the gallery to your domestic items. And that's yeah. the idea of everyday things, you know.
0: I love that. And is it hard, like you're a curator, is it hard to put the curator hat on when it's your own work? and you're so close to to
1: curate your own exhibition. It's horrible, it's horrible. And you know, <laughs> it, it's it's for me, I, I joke about it, but like sometimes I love a painting and hate a painting in across one day. You know, in the morning when the light is too hard, I, I don't like that painting. And then as the evening light comes in and it sort of brings out the subtle colors, you go, gosh, did I paint that? And uh, it's very hard to look at your own work in my opinion I don't know if everybody suffers from that but I definitely suffer from that idea that I think it's very difficult
0: to be as objective like I know when you were talking about how you curated the new yin and how you had in mind okay I'll put these two people together because they've got that contrast and that's interesting because you were objective and it wasn't your own work mm-hmm. exactly. but I can imagine when it's your work and you are then curating and hanging and deciding which pieces and how to put it together that it's it's very challenging to kind of put back that objective to make it. Well, like, would you be tempted to get somebody else to kind of come in and look at it? Or do you want to curate it yourself?
1: You, you, you see that a lot. You know, you see a one person's show curated by another person altogether. And, you know, it seems like a, a, a lot of effort. I mean, sometimes a curator will come in and write a piece as well about the artist's work. So I get it. I get why someone would do that. But I, I don't think I need to do that. Uh, the paintings are what they are. As long as you don't overcrowd i mean our show now at the moment the new you art that's quite a busy hang but i can get away with that because it's a group show but for a solo show you don't want to overhang the walls you know and sort of say here's all the things i made uh you need yeah. to kind of leave spaces for people to pass through so there'll be some series of works so there's a series of 15 small pieces you know there'll be groupings of work there'll be big paintings But whether it's the group show, Aideen, or or my solo show, I try and arrange the big paintings first, see where they want to go, move them around for half an hour and see, oh, look, that fits there, that works there. As you walk in, you're going to see this, you know. So I try and switch off my own brain by the time the work gets in and, you know, just curate it like it's somebody else's work, you know. Oh, I mean, that's
0: that's a great tip, actually, for anybody hanging around, especially start with the big big pieces, get that story, mm. that flow, and
1: then move into. The well, you see, I have, a friend in, I have a friend in Berlin, and I didn't know this existed until I saw him doing it, uh, Endo Donahue. I was in college with him in Limerick. And uh, he had a show somewhere, and it was probably abroad. So, oh, I know it was for the Limerick City Art Gallery. He had a big show there a few years back. And he had designed out a miniature version of the gallery, like an architect's design, physical design, and he had, printed small versions of the paintings and he was placing them in around the walls, you know, I thought that's an insane amount of, uh, uh preparation. And then I realized lots of artists do that. Uh, especially for bigger museum shows, they would go ahead and do this. But if I know a
0: little 3d model and like, yeah.
1: cut them out and move you know them know around. You you see the 3d models and the little rooms made out. And Yeah. And, that's uh, they... You can, you can get apps for that actually. But I know I had to do
0: that. Um, like I, very little experience of hanging and curating my own work but I decided to do the art source in the RDS and I was so stressed about because I was going by car what am I bringing with me in the car that I'll have with me and what am I hanging on the wall and because I had so many favorites to kind of go what ones am I going to choose and I just tied it a wall so I actually just used an app I think in the end to do that moving around because I'm visual and I had to see it to plan out in advance because I didn't have the luxury of Doing it in the space, I had to decide mm. I know exactly what I was bringing. But, um, yeah, I was looking online. people were doing that uh small moving around. And I suppose you're visual, you have to have some kind of way of working it out. yeah, but
1: if, but if I know a space, if I know a space yeah. and i I can th- I can walk through it in my head, knowing where things are going to go. And I really enjoy it. To me, that's a design. you can call it curating, but to me it's design. And you know, I, I'm a big fan of Bruce Mao and his view of uh design being everything uh he's a canadian designer uh who was invited over by design the design crafts council uh for the design week that was on maybe before christmas and i would have heard him speak online before but i i went up and met him and his wife bc and you know he has a great phrase uh, let's see if i can get it right uh, where we fail to design we design for failure you know so uh, in his view, everything is design. It's not just a question of here's a glass or here's a book or here's you're designing systems. You're designing the way people pass through a room with an exhibition. So, you know, uh, curatorial practice, like I can't say that I'm involved properly as a curator. You know, curators live in museums and they have jobs and titles. And I'm an, I'm a, I'm an artist who wants to see certain exhibitions happen, do you know. And Michael Cullen, who's dead now, he died last year, was a a lovely artist, a a nice friend. And the only painting that existed in the Firkin Crane before I got there was a painting that was donated to them by Michael Cullen. And I would have curated him into exhibitions when he was still alive. And Michael said to me once in the studio, I was probably having this same conversation I'm having with you, about I'm not a curator, I'm not a curator. And he was one of the people who would have started the independent artists movement in Dublin, in the 19, I suppose it was 60s or 70s. And he said, we didn't call ourselves curators. We were just artists who were putting on exhibitions, you know? So, getting you know, the work I get out it. there. You're just getting the work out there. And I get it. Some people are clearly curators, but there's an awful lot of people. Uh, I think they enjoy the title a bit too much. I
0: think it's another form of creativity, really. You're thinking you're looking for opportunities, new spaces, ways of showing your own work and other people's work. And I'm delighted by the way that you are actually having a solo exhibition, that you're not just in group shows all the time that you are also showing your work because it's, you know, you put so much work into the space, the only right that you get to have that showcase. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think, it, how do you manage then all these different jobs you're doing? So you're You're trying to paint, you're trying to create, you're creating opportunities. Do you have like a, do you work out like a timetable? Do you plan your week or is it like, as what's the most important job? How do you work out your time and balance it? Um, well, the,
1: the, 2017, I did this life coaching course I was telling you about. And like the first module of that, you know, was time management and how many, how do you manage your time? And uh, it was very useful because they, I don't know how many they listed out how many minutes are in the day and how many hours are in the week. When you hear it, it's insane. And and they ask you, what are you doing? You know, write down what you're doing and you can't, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. You're not conscious of what you're doing all day. So it's difficult because like to be organized and there's, there's a huge field of people out there, coaches and creative coaches who are uh, helping people to manage their time and manage their resources. But I suppose for artists, it's going to be very personal. How do you, How do you navigate, especially if you have a family, how do you navigate all the needs and the troubles? And, you know, again, back to Chris. So when I met Chris again, after all those years, it was a very similar path. It was very strange. So he had been, you know, involved in meditation and mindfulness and he, he was retraining. He's now a long time now. He's a psychotherapist. So there was a dual interest in how people manage their lives and art, you know, so... I, I think what, what I, my point about that is, I've often spoken to Chris about this struggle when you're being pulled away to do something else that's not your art. Um, we kind of agree that it, it enriches the art when you come back. When you come back in, it really there's something. Then you know you're back in the studio. You know this is valuable time. Whereas if I had the whole week to myself in the studio, maybe I just wouldn't appreciate it as much. You know. So that's, that's not very, really answering. Looking your- at it. I'm no, not but answering that's your true. Question yeah. And you've said properly. that before.
0: When you go away, you you're you're more energized when you return to the studio and you're more grateful for it because it is, yeah, you know, we we, we all have day jobs and making money other ways and yeah. paint that paint. So when you get in there, it's it's precious time, you know. And you're 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 probably much more productive when you go into the studio as well, because we're like, okay, now I'm here.
1: But you are, I, I remember back in, I had a studio in Singer's Corner like 25 years ago. There's still artists there now. Patrick Ashton, I think, is still there. Um, but I had a studio there and I was in a difficult relationship at the time. And I was working in Apple and, uh, you know, on the on the construction line or the process line in Apple. And I was in, in this relationship that was going downhill rapidly. And when I went to the studio, I just painted. I just painted and painted and I was much more productive than the times when I had this whole day to myself. And this was a big question mark hanging over my head. How is it I'm doing better paintings now than when I had all the time in the world to strategize and, and plan? Maybe and it's work that it out?
0: constraint or like the da- deadlines are
1: absolutely
0: like sometimes I find out I might only have half an hour, but you could mm. do something in half an hour. And sometimes when you've less time, maybe you just you're bolder. Because you're like, okay, I want to get now. So just going, you take that big risk. Whereas if you have the whole day, you could faff around, <laughs> do lots sure. of little things. And maybe yeah. sometimes you just go and make that bold move. And you can't overpaint when you have less time as well. You just have to leave it. Right, right. So sometimes that energy comes out. I think I don't know, mm. but it's it's all different strategies. What would you what would you say? There's you know, so many different parts of being an um, an artist. What's your least favorite part
1: or your least favorite job that you have to do as an artist? I mean. And uh, the least favorite Talking is the
0: application.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I I get past that. I'm okay. Um, but applications, Aideen, are, are a huge challenge. Wow. And they're, they're part of the landscape, let's say, of being an artist. But at the same time, you know, uh, I tell the anecdote of having met an artist on the street, a friend of mine, and she asked me, did you do that recent Arts Council uh, bursary application? And I said to her, I haven't applied to the Arts Council in 10 years. And guess what, I'm very happy, <laughs> Do you know? So um, that's not to disparage anybody who does apply, but, you know, th- there's a, I need to be very sure about applying for something now because of the time that it takes, and not just the time, but the mental uh, shift that's needed. You know, I helped um, I helped someone put together an application during lockdown and that was, there were 20 supporting documents needed for that. Oh God. And you're talking, you know, in in, psych, in psychological terms, I believe that, you know, there's all the best intentions in the world, but what the, the Arts Council and the government sometimes are creating is a mirror image of their jobs. They're creating people who are sitting down doing this, whereas that's the last thing that artists need to be doing. Then, you know, and and it's the same for the kind also, of professional. It's
0: not just the Arts Council. I mean, it's if you. Um, you know if you want to get into an exhibition like it was great for your exhibition that there was no form to be filled out even a little online thing but like maybe going forward if you have lots of applications you might have to introduce something to make it easier for you but if you're going for you know even gallery spaces in Ireland they might say write a proposal for an exhibition
1: right. I suppose
0: they want to see something in writing um, and maybe it levels the playing field as well that it Everybody gets a chance to write something. I suppose it is a skill we've develop as artists, but it is. I agree with you. I hate that side as well. And I often when you see, don't, or I, I tend to procrastinate. I do the I do not like you. I do spend more time writing and thinking. I'm pretty much a last minute person for these applications.
1: Need we need to be careful as artists in one sense because, like, I don't have the correct cognitive therapy term for it, but there's, there's something dangerous about writing and speaking about your work in, in a way that's not true, because your brain then accepts that that is true. Your brain will accept if you keep repeating to yourself, "My work is about the post-structuralist investigation of such and such and such, this is art speak, and your, your, your oh, yeah. brain doesn't know that that's not true, you know and, and then you've got this shift and divide then between the applications dermot and the real dermot who's making work. You know, so And I
0: would say, I think art speak, I don't know, um, like I, I, my background is I did literature. I had a master's in French literature before mm. I moved eventually into being an artist. Art speak doesn't exist anywhere outside of the art world, maybe even the visual art world. It's just a very, um, like when I was taught to write English for my degree and my master's, it was always about saying something in less words. It makes it better. Mm. It's better English if you can say things in less words. And I think mm. art speak and these applications and sometimes these statements are so obtuse and can be very flowery. And it can be lots of words layered upon words. And I don't know what it means. I was talking to um, a theatre director in Dublin, actually, mm. and he was asked to be on some board to evaluate proposals. And he was like going, what the hell is this? This is like, I don't understand it. It's not English. So it's great to I think it's going to change. I think it's changed in some countries, but not yet in Ireland. You still see a lot of this um a lot of big words guy, being put together.
1: Some guys put a website together where you can you can get a fake proposal made of the, art jargon. Yeah, there's the
0: art statement generator, isn't it? The yeah. yeah. I
1: mean but there's a great phrase I suppose in at the same
0: time, you have to kind of articulate your thinking. Like I remember the very early days you asked me to be in this um, cafe space. I remember I brought you these paintings and you sat down with me and you were like going, "Okay, 18, what are they about? And I was like, I. It was all so internal to me. Nobody had asked me, what are you painting? What's it about? And I couldn't even find the words to articulate and you kept asking I was like it's about feelings and you were like going but what feelings and you kept asking me I, so and sorry. you were trying to get me to no <laughs> no it was actually very um but you were the first person who did that and I had ne- I had never written an artist statement or an artist bio I didn't even know what they were and I suppose yes there's that side we have to articulate what our work is by talking about it but then there's people who will, never meet us they'll never speak to us and writing about art is a way of allowing people another way in so it is a tool if it's used well so it does have a place but I agree with you about writing those applications are beyond painful I'd say that is probably my my least favorite jobs too
1: it's a little bit cynical right but there was a thing that we used to joke about in college you know can you imagine a situation where you were studying uh, philosophy or literature in Trinity College in Dublin and you submitted your proposal through painting, right? That you're expected to explain your proposal through painting. So people, it's, writing is ubiquitous. Writing is everywhere to explain everything, and people spend their days on the phone. It's everywhere. So we forget that we're using it. And for me, it's an art form in itself. If you look at someone like Christine Leach and the way she writes, she wrote a piece for an exhibition I I curated in McCroom. This piece was called Threshold, it's a review, if you like, of, of a thought piece on the show, but it's like a piece of literature. It's absolutely beautiful. So this is an art form unto itself. And you're asking people who are really good, let's say, in one uh, aspect of art, visual art, and they spend their time learning that, you're asking them to transform that through another language so that it's easier for you to look at, so that's it's easier for maybe, you well, to maybe understand. Maybe
0: that's why there is so much bad art writing, actually, because nobody's been trained how to write and it is it is a skill I agree with you and it is sure. like what I have is I have one big document and I'm every time I write a statement or a bio it, I'd say it's different because I'm constantly and also what I'm painting is different so the thought process is constantly changing and but I remember uh, meeting artists and I said a presentation and they would say they would write out their statement of their bio and I found it very intimidating and I felt well, I can't be a real artist because I don't have that. I don't speak it. But I, at the same time, I have to say, I think it's not all bad. I think you can have writing about art like the writing you mentioned there by Christine Leach, which is insightful and it gives another layer, another way into the painting. Like I think mm-hmm. titles are also important. Like you talked about the title of your exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tells a story. And titles of paintings can also, they can be so powerful when they're they're right. Like a great title to a painting suddenly mm. gives a whole other layer and a way in for the viewer without being prescriptive. It just gives another story. Mm. You know, when you write a post on Instagram, you can, so writing has a place and it is accessible because I know a lot of people uh, who I've met say they would never go into a gallery because they'd be intimidated. So there is a whole lot of people who don't maybe go and see art in person. So any way that art can engage people, and maybe writing is the most successful because most people read. So they can see and then they can read. I actually an exhibition right. recently of Corbin Walker's exhibition in the Crawford. Mm. And he did uh, he his own exhibition and then he had a group show. And I have mm. never seen such interesting labels beside paintings. He had the he had the painting and then he had written down why he chose it, his connection Mm. to that person. He had a little anecdote. And that was fascinating. So that Mm. for me was I think they were the best labels of an exhibition Mm. I've ever seen. It added so many more layers. It added to my enjoyment Mm. hugely. So I suppose there's all different ways. I think we can maybe break down all those rules. And if you could just kind of move past art speak i mean it's certainly it's certainly out of vogue in america so i'm presuming eventually it'll, it'll disappear here
1: too <laughs> it's fine I, I can speak you know i mean i'm very interested in things like tibetan buddhism and how the non uh, version of reality uh, maps over onto abstract expressionism so i can talk i can talk and i can you know explain complex ideas but i i really think there's the, the italian phrase paile come manji so it's like, speak as you eat. It's a very short phrase, you know? So do you go home and do you have meat and veg? Yeah, you probably do. And so speak as you eat. You don't go home and have hot cuisine. You know, so why are you, why are you speaking in this way that's- Keep it simple. Uh, keep it simple. Keep it simple and yeah. then you're including people. You're not excluding people. And as you said, you have friends or family or whatever who uh, are afraid to go into a gallery. I've come across this all my working life as an artist of people who've got some version of this story of, well, I don't understand art, but, you know, it starts like this. Or, I you know, I don't really get why they do this. And when I worked in uh, different spaces and galleries, I was I, I had great joy in breaking that down for people and saying, who told you? Who told you you need to know about art? Who told you that you, this is an area of expertise that you need to you know, beg to be allowed into. And I had one exhibition in 2012, a group exhibition in uh, what it, where the lavit is now. It was the it was run by the Art College, so it was the ones for Key Gallery. And for the first couple of days, it was a group of maybe 16 artists that were ex-students, or some of them were ex-students from the Crawford. And I didn't leave a sheet at the door explaining what the exhibition was about. Right? Yeah. And I, I did it on purpose. I wanted people to come in and have a look and see the work for what it is, and and use their own intelligence, and I got in trouble, I got in trouble with the, uh, a little bit of trouble, let's say, Uh, there were questions asked as to why I didn't have a sheet, and then I did the sheet, and I explained it, but Vera Ryan was still the uh, art history professor, you know, she's a a huge figure in the Irish art scene, and she's retired from the college now, but she's written a number of books on whole Irish art history and um, she was the head of, of history at the time and I said to Revere let's have a discussion about this in front of the students because the students were going to come in and look at the exhibition and there was going to be a talk and I said let's not fix this you know let's have this be a bone of contention between you and I and we discussed it with the students and we had one of the best discussions because they didn't think that they were allowed to put their own interpretation onto the things you know so it was one of the best talks I had ever in a gallery. Was was with that? That
0: I love that. Well, that's right. And that you're kind of a, you're you can now break the rules and set the rules in your own spaces as well. And you could do it the way you want and try different things.
1: Mm-hmm. Hopefully.
0: Would, um else? Do you ever procrastinate? You sound so busy and you're so productive. You do so many things. Do you ever procrastinate or do you just always just do everything?
1: Um, I don't believe it exists. I, I read an article somewhere recently that says laziness. <laughs> laziness and procrastination they don't exist we're actually I mean if you think about it you're always doing something procrastination yeah, is a thing things. it's a thing you're doing something what do you I think mean,
0: can I ask you for you in your own opinion what's the hardest part to being an artist
1: what's the hardest part or the, um, I, mean, I think it's just being honest about the fact that this is a real thing this is a real path. I think there's an awful lot of art out there that seems tries to justify itself by associating itself let's say art and science is a huge area art and health is another huge area and there's lots of interest in people working in those areas but it on one level there seems to be a need that art has to justify itself by associating itself with something else you know so for me it's believing that painting is a real path in itself it's a thing unto itself and and you know, try and stay the course. Maybe I'll be famous before I'm ninety. You know,
0: <laughs> definitely, Darren, definitely. And how do you handle rejection?
1: Uh, it's difficult. You know, it's it's not easy to be rejected about anything. Um, but it, you know, again, to the design thinking philosophy or or, or approach. Uh, built into some of the five stages of design thinking is the prototyping stage. You know, so you prototype an idea or a business or whatever, and it's you're always prototyping. Even this conversation with you is a prototype. So I'm I'm getting feedback and I'm getting information back. So a rejection is just a prototype. It's just like oh god, I love that. You know, it's just a prototype. I got turned down from this gallery. Maybe I'm not the right person from that gallery. You know, um. It's just that's the way I look at it now, and but I need I need a good reason to apply for something. So,
0: so you're much more discerning about what you apply for now. You apply for yeah, yeah. Well, when you're I mean, organizing had, all your own stuff, you don't need to apply well,
1: anymore. I've <laughs> had so many conversations with artists about why is this part of the art world wrong, why is that part of the art world wrong, and and often I've said if we just stitch together all of those conversations, we can build our own thing. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, stop you're complaining your about, own
0: movement. Yeah, what's the you mentioned one of your teachers but what's the best advice do you think a mentor or teacher gave you that really stayed with you that really helped you if you can think of something
1: uh yeah i mean i had a wonderful wonderful teacher uh henry kono who uh was a japanese canadian who came to ireland and taught in a saikido for 12 or 15 years even longer he's dead now um but he was an absolute gent and a genius and Uh, Me reading all of my Zen books and my philosophy books, you know, I I was in a party with him once and I said to him, But we have to be in the present moment, Henry. I was saying to him, You know, we, 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 how can we be in the present moment and just be here, you know? And he said, Nonsense, nonsense. You need to have an objective. You need to have an objective in front of you out in the future. Otherwise, the energy won't come out. I thought that was a brilliant. Uh, understanding of the quality of energy in the body because if you're only here in the present moment the energy is here and it's nice and it's flowing but if you want the energy to come out and go forward you need an objective you know maybe you never get the objective but at least you got this energy to come out you're you know? striving
0: and that is a brilliant advice and do you set goals for yourself like do you have those objectives for yourself
1: very soft goals you know, very, very soft, gentle, you know, I'll have two coffees today. No, uh, <laughs> no, uh no, no but it's What objectives
0: do you set yourself for that energy apart from like, or like you don't have to share with us, but do you set like objectives so your energy moves forward?
1: No? Never, 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 There's no objectives. There's ideas I need to buy in two weeks time. Like there's an application that I'm doing now at the moment and uh, it's, you know, it's for a particular grant that's there in the design space. Um, but I know that if I, even if I don't put that application in, it's worth going for that because it will force me to align the work that I'm doing. And you learn things as as you get closer to a deadline, you learn things that you never would have learned before about why you're doing it or what's important or I won't do that part, you know? So the, the, the deadlines and, the, and the, the kind of objectives are very, very abstract and soft, you know?
0: So I, why not? Why not? And if there was anybody listening now, Dermot, like an emerging artist who might be listening, or somebody who's even thinking about going into the art world, what advice would you give them?
1: Um, You know, it's it's similar to the the two times I've been to the speed curating thing with the VAI. I you know, I was sitting there as a coach, much more than a curator, and I was saying to any of the artists that I met almost. 90% of them were saying, how can I get into this gallery? How can I get more traction? And almost all of the answers I said to them was, do it yourself, do it yourself. Why don't you do it yourself? Why don't you do a partnership with, because everybody wants partnerships with the art world, but the art world is inundated with offers and uh, uh, requests and, you know, can I have an exhibition in three years' time? So if you associate yourself with other people who are not in the art world, Offices, universities, charities—you're going to be pushing an open door, and and it's, there's two things: you might not get the traction that you want or the recognition from the art world, but you get movement. You get movement forward in your own space, and movement is half of the uh, issue. It's the feeling of being stuck that is is the death of your your own creativity.
0: That's brilliant advice, and that's very similar to the advice you got about that energy moving forward. So you're saying mm-hmm. people create your own opportunities or look in areas where nobody else is looking. Yeah. Showing space yeah. in other spaces or connecting for people.
1: There's a lot of libraries. For example, there's a lot of libraries have uh, been redeveloped and they all have, a lot of them have gallery spaces that are just as nice and good as any white cube gallery around the, the country. They
0: are. Oven. Yeah, actually, actually, one of my, my, I think my first exhibition was a joint exhibition in the library in Bishopstown, which is it's a gorgeous yeah. sort
1: of space, actually. I heard it's lovely. I heard it's lovely.
0: It was really, really nice. And it was just a... It was a really library. nice... Um,
1: Libraries are municipal spaces where there's people in there all day long, right? Yes. And you have your audience straight away, whereas you go to a gallery and they're crying to get people in. They can't get them in. You Absolutely. Know? I love that. Are there any books you'd
0: recommend that you find really useful? Art books or otherwise? A few books that you have really
1: there's lots of books. I mean, there's a stack of books over here that I haven't read that I promised myself to read. But um, in terms of, um, one second now, in terms of the art like space. Two or three right, books
0: that you've read that you think everybody
1: should read. There's this, there's this one, Working Space by Frank Stella. So Frank Stella is a painter, an artist, uh, multidisciplinary artist from the States. And um, he wrote this series of lectures called Working Space. And he, he associates modern abstract painting with Renaissance painting and how they developed and how they're similar. It's really, really great. From an artist's perspective, that's a really great book, you know. Um, that's, you can probably find that online, a version of it online. It's, it's is that about creating your problems.
0: own working space? Is that it?
1: About the, you... the working oh. space he's talking about is not your studio. It's the working space of painting of like the, the space within oh. paint so how oh, do you make that work?
0: composition
1: yeah not just composition but the how does the language like if you imagine renaissance painting peeled away and the structure that's behind that you, you essentially have abstract painting straight away so it's he's he did a great amount of research and, and showed that like there isn't this fracture at the beginning of the 20th century and then you've got modern art and it's just not like that there's lots of tears and pulls and sort of stretches, but there's no break. So here was the classical period. Here was the modern period. There's no such thing, you know? So people should be able to pick and choose from different eras.
0: I love that. Any other recommendations?
1: Yeah. Uh, my my girlfriend got me into uh, Murakami. Haruki Murakami. The what? That's the wind-up bird chronicle. So... You know, the art book I just described is great from a sort of a nerdy artist perspective. But I get kind of like the music we spoke about at the start. I get much more inspiration from uh, a piece of fiction. So um, Murakami, you know, they joke about him being up for the Nobel Prize for literature every year and he never gets it. And the Japanese are very disappointed. But it doesn't matter. He's he's probably not suitable because he's writing in such an unusual way about uh, human nature, you know. So oh, wow. it's important.
0: These are great books. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to read these and the covers. Um Thank you. people can't see the covers, they're listening, but well, they're amazing. And I'm going to put links to all these books and everything that Dermot has said in the show notes, mm. people who want to dive in. Have you got have you got something else for us? I'm intrigued.
1: Any other book? Uh, in terms of books, I mean there's um like I mentioned Tibetan Buddhism before, and like that's that's called true perception. That's uh, Choggyam Trungpa. That's an unusual name, but he was a, a Tibetan master who ended up in Colorado in the 1960s and started the foundation there, which is now a college. I think they have an arts department as well. So, you know, it's a very particular, you know, it's as language based as, let's say, we were talking about the fine art world. But I think they have a very great insight into Original creativity and your basic ground that you're dealing with. So your basic ground as a human is your awareness. So you know you could say Adine is a painter and she uses materials, yeah, but her she's manipulating the awareness of people. So it's it's awareness that you're manipulating. You're just using the paint to do that, you know. So he was very interested in creativity. This is all his lectures about creativity. You can get that online. They've just put a digital archive of all of his lectures online so there's a lot of resources there for that um but I I think it's wonderful
0: they're great books they're and it's so eclectic like they really say so much about you and all your interests they're so diverse I love it and I want to ask you as well if you could um meet any artist or a couple of artists living Mm -hmm. or dead who would you choose and is there anything you'd ask them or what would you say to them if you got to meet them
1: well I I always, when I'm in Barcelona with Sarah, I always go, no matter what, even if the exhibition hasn't changed, I'll go to the uh, Tapies Foundation, Antonio Tapies, a a Catalan artist. And, you know, I I would have seen his work in college and I I didn't think much of it. It was very uh, arte povera, you know, arte povera. It's like very raw, rough materials, like the nails I was speaking about in the studio, you know, things that are banged together. But, like, I've just fallen in love with him in the last few years. And, and the, the, there's a huge library there of his books and uh, his influences. And he was very interested in mixing kind of spiritual traditions from the East and West. And he was against war and he was passionate about, you know, uh, you know, rights and justice. And, you know, that's one artist I would love to have sat down with him and met him. But the other one I would like to say is, uh the american painter joan mitchell is uh so strong like there's an exhibition i'd like to see in paris uh oh i know John it's
0: ending this month
1: this month you know so there's mitchell and monet so you know i don't know if there was a direct influence but they're definitely well suited together and uh she lived in know. paris
0: uh yeah she lived in paris she actually had an affair with sam beckett actually i discovered recently really? read her biography yeah, I actually, would you believe it, last night I was actually looking at flights, direct flights in Cork, Paris, thinking, could I go over and back in the day? Um, but there are none right now. Uh, but okay. anybody at the time recording, it's on for the few weeks.
1: I would so love to see that in mm-hmm. person,
0: to see their I'd love to I'm meet a her, huge fan of
1: Mitchell. Out, I'd love to find out what it was like for her painting when there were so many strong male painters at the time. And like, it's oh, would very you ask strange. Her?
0: if you could meet her ask, if you could meet her
1: what would you ask her i'd ask her about her bravery right because the paintings are so loose they're so painterly and so loose as they are they're almost falling apart in front of you like they're well made canvases but the paint is uh, so loose like the cooning and people like that were very famous for you know messy juicy wet painting but she went even a stage further and now in retrospect you know they're probably some of the best paintings that were made during the period. I mean, that's my perspective. You know, I, I, there's other artists I know who would have very different opinions on that. But I just every time I see her work, I think there's something great in it, you know.
0: I, and I agree with you that there's an exhibition. It's on the Louis Vuitton um, space in Paris. Mm. my and Mitchell together. So, oh, my God, that would be Part, I've see, just seen it on Instagram, I've seen photographs, but mm. that is one I would love to be in the room mm. and see that. I spent a year in Paris when I was 19, I spent most of my time going to art exhibitions, and that's the thing when you're in, in a country or a city where you can go and see the stuff excessively, mm. uh, there's nothing like it. That seeing, um, that rawness mm. of being, mm. like, breathing in the same space these paintings you might have only have seen in a book or on the screen, it is. There's an energy there in the room when you're in the room with the painting.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's speaking to you, and you're
0: you're you're speaking. I think it's something about for me as well. But seeing the hand of the artist, you can almost you can like you feel like you're so connected to the artist. Particularly if, if you're a fan of that artist, so you're nerding out. But the no. that you feel like you're you're touching them almost. They're touching you. There's just uh, yeah. I I get very emotional awesome. when I'm in the presence of paintings awesome. that I love.
1: Definitely. I was in um, so, I, I went uh, sorry. Go I ahead. went to Paris when I was I was in college in Dunleary for one year and we went to Paris and I remember going to the Musée d'Orsay and you know I was tired and I probably wasn't eating right. And you know, you get to the top floor and you're oh, that's another brilliant painting, another fantastic, famous one. I can't enjoy it. I'm just tired and I want to go home. And then I came across this Lovis Corinth. Lo- Lovis Corinth was a German painter, and very expressive, kind of painterly uh, thing, but it was a portrait of some writer. But it looked just like um, James Joyce, you know. I just walked around this corner. there's this portrait of a guy with little round glasses, uh, and I was just gone kind of so emotional over this one small painting, you know. And yeah, the reaction really- is so
0: visceral, isn't it? I could be so. I suppose that it is, and that's why we're painting. And we love paintings. It's just, it just you're connected. There's a connection there that. I don't know, I I certainly feel it. When I was living there, I was lucky enough that I had, my boyfriend at the time was um, studying art, and he was able to give me this free pass, so I could Ah. just go into every single, because in in France you pay, it's not like in Ireland where all these galleries are free, you pay every time. So I just go in all the time. Like I I was actually studying at Sorbonne, I was doing very little studying. I was going to look at art all the time. And yeah, I just... My God, I just like wander in. And when you have that time, I mean, that's what you have when you're young. You have all that time. I just go in and you can spend hours just in one room and then go back another day. If I had all those, I had endless time as a student. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's great.
0: But it's a dermis for anybody. Obviously, I'm going to put links uh, in the show notes which and I put some images of Dermot's work and he's got mm-hmm. his incredible exhibition, which I'm really looking forward to seeing now and seeing how you hang all those big pieces after you talked about it in Praying Visual. How can people find you or how can they find out more of your spaces?
1: I mean, it's it the easiest way is to go to the web, my website and um, I, I try as much as I can to put extra links on the website to go off to other things. Um, What's your website? To, can you
0: say for people?
1: dermotbrown.squarespace.com okay so dermotbrown.squarespace.com and I'll put a link
0: yeah. as well how about Instagram are you on Instagram?
1: yeah it's dermotbrownartist with underscores between the, the words so that's that's the easiest way and unfortunately I'm on it way too much and you can find me there and chat to me I try and write back to people and you know things are getting and we know busy you're on LinkedIn
0: it. we're yeah. on LinkedIn, is LinkedIn already yeah
1: yeah, that's a good one as well, but not, not a lot of artists are on there all the time. So, you know, but uh, what reach about, out to me. And... Uh,
0: if somebody was interested in finding out more about these spaces or um can mm. artists contact you about exhibiting these spaces? Or is that are you going to have some sort of way or mechanism for that?
1: No, I haven't planned anything. <laughs> uh, they can contact me by any means, contact me. And, you know, at the moment... I'm trying to do things a little bit thematically. I have ideas for this year, but I, as I said, I don't want to tie things down until I, I know that it fits the space. So it, it's not it's human nature, Aideen. For example, like I put on the exhibition with the female artists and I have loads of female artists now asking me, um, can they have an exhibition? And, oh, you know, really? That's, yeah, but that's, that, you know, that's normal. So, you know, people think, oh, he must show wow. only female artists. And it's just not like that, you know?
0: what are they doing? Are they
1: DMing you with it? And... Yeah, a mixture of things. That's okay. It's it's on Instagram or it's on the, you know, my email is on the website. So I'm happy to hear from people. I try and write back, you know, but it's it's like I said to the artists in the, the, the networking meetings that we go to. I said, look, try your best to do it for yourself, you know? Uh, and it's a human yeah, nature thing. That we think, your time. Yeah, and we think that somebody else out there is going to save us and help us and bring us into the fold, you know? But... The art world is full of silos of people, you know, doing their own thing. So why not you set up your own world? Okay, that's
0: great. So um, I just think you're doing so much. I'm so impressed, German, with everything you're doing, and I'm just so excited now to see your exhibition after hearing more about your process.
1: And And I love your energy. Opening in
0: March, isn't it?
1: I love your energy, Aideen. I love the way you're doing things. And this podcast is another great entrepreneurial example of doing it yourself, you know? It's, it's fair but this to. This is something you
0: know. I um, procrastinated about. I had this idea for this podcast about, oh God, about two years ago, I think. And I just kept putting it off because I'm, I don't have a lot of time and I'm scared of technology. Like the first few times oh this kind of headphone and mic the first time I, I try, it's over Christmas I said I had a little bit of time I just thought you know what I'm just going to start and what I've done with everything is I just dive into it I don't think about it too much I just figure out that I will learn as I go so I'm sure the first few episodes were kind of ropey and I'm getting better at even like figuring out how to interview people how it all works mm-hmm. it's a huge learning curve for me the reason why I'm doing it is. Um, I suppose when I started my whole journey on Instagram, and I felt like very much like I'm not a real artist. I I knew very few people even on Instagram. All the artists I met initially were mostly on Instagram. And particularly during lockdown, I just started sharing more about my thought process or what was going on, or even all the things about imposter syndrome. And I would get a lot of responses from people who like would send me private messages saying. I'm like you, or I identify with this. So I realized a whole lot of people out there are are like me. And you actually said this to me. There's a lot of people with the same journey of moving from a non-creative world into a creative world. But when you're there, you feel like you're the only one. You feel like, and I felt also that I was very old starting as an artist. I felt like I felt very self-conscious about that and full of fear, I suppose. So I had this idea, and I suppose that's why the title came about, because... me to be an artist you have to kind of very brave and you are a warrior because it's it's hard to be vulnerable it's hard to express Mm -hmm. yourself so i had the idea i had the title and then i decided (sighs) i'm just going to do it so i recorded a few episodes and then i didn't tell anybody
1: (laughs) (laughs) good idea i just put
0: put them out there and then i was a whatever in january i just said okay it's here i've done it and people started listening and again unsurprisingly people wrote lovely messages saying i this resonates with me this is my story i identify with it so that gives me the i suppose the knowing that right i'm on the right path and i'm sharing something that's of value so i suppose i'm doing it it's like an act of service i want to give back because i've um contacted people or anytime anybody shares something with you you learn and i suppose i'm still learning i'm learning by talking to people like you and all people i've interviewed but I also feel that I've learned a lot, and I can if I can share that and I can help anybody, then that's great. Because I, when I started off, I listened a lot to podcasts about every aspect of the art world. I don't feel there's enough Irish voices out there. A lot of them are very um, or American, and the yeah. Irish art world is different. And there was, and I'm also fascinated with people's stories. I always want to know how they got there. Not I just don't yes. want to see the painting on the wall and the exhibition. I want mm-hmm. to know what's their studio like. How do they mm-hmm. paint? What paints they use. I want to know all of that background stuff. So I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm asking questions. That I'm curious about sure. <laughs> sure. It like the way you say you pull together exhibitions of people you want to see. So it's a way for mm-hmm. me to be nosy and find all this information and share it with other people.
1: Well done. I, I hope well. it's I hope it helps as many people as it, I suspect it will, you know.
0: Oh, well, see, it's it's all, you know, who knows what comes with these things, but I think every time it's a bit like you talk about that energy, when well, you put something mm-hmm. out there, things come and things happen that we don't even know about, but because we're being brave and we're doing something new, and I by not painting, I was thinking of what you were saying about, I'm in my studio as I record this, but I'm not painting. But I can see paintings on the screen, and I'm going. Oh, I right. know what I'm going to do now. So it's given right. me that uh, restriction. On my painting time is going to give me energy when I go back to paint. And also, it's so inspiring to hear the stuff that you're doing. So Dermot, thank you so much for sharing your story, and I wish you every success, you're in all the amazing things you're doing, and the next steps in your creative journey, in your own art, and your upcoming solo exhibition, and in all this amazing stuff you're doing in these new exciting art spaces. There'll be links.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, on the show notes, for anyone to see more, mm-hmm. if you want to dive in a bit deeper, and I'll also have some examples of, of Dermot's work, and I'll tag and share on Instagram also. So thank you very much for listening to The Warrior Artist. If, you're, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you have a few moments, I'd be very grateful if you could rate a review, as this helps others find me. If you want to see more of what I'm up to, or get in touch with a suggestion for an episode, You can find me on Instagram at Aden underscore Glynn, that's E-A-D-A-O-I-N underscore G-L-Y-N-N and through my website, AideenGlynn.com. Thank you for listening, wishing you all the best with your creative journey and remember you are a warrior artist.